0: The podcast which you are about to hear is an account of the tragedy which befell a pair of photographers, in particular, Vanya Francesca and her intrepid co-host, Eric. It is all the more tragic in that they were young Gish. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see, as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic autumn afternoon recording became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the All Through a Lens podcast.
1: Rolling, take one. If I have any more
2: fun today, I don't think I'm going to be able to take It's it. Is it-
0: Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens.
2: This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. But
0: are you going to do that? Should, if you're going to do that, should I do a spookier intro? I think so. Okay. Greetings and welcome to All Through a Land.
2: You have to do it better than that, sorry.
0: Wow, seriously?
2: Yeah, it was too short.
0: What? <laughs> Like, eight words. Okay, go for it. (laughs) Okay, well, fuck all of that then.
2: (laughs) I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this basically spooky season, we've got a frightfully full show for you. We'll be talking to Dave from Victorian Photo Studio in Gettysburg about tintypes and ghost photos, naturally. We'll also tell you all about some ridiculously explosive film that was essentially gunpowder. Ever wanted to know how to spot a fake ghost photo? It's pretty easy, but we'll tell you how anyways. There's also Tiffin Sinclair, Zine Reviews, and Oodles More. So grab your shovels and dig this six-foot-deep episode with us. But first, let's see how my co-host is doing over there, Eric. Tell tell me how you are.
0: Well, hey, I'm just frightened by all of this (laughs) spookiness that's apparently... Happening right now uh, that I I didn't know about prior to this.
2: Any Halloween plans? No, (laughs) I I don't. Nothing.
0: I don't really do anything for Halloween.
2: Okay, if you could dress up, what would you dress up as?
0: Oh God, I I mean, I was never like a big dress up person. I don't know if I was always like a little, just a little too cool for that, or or what. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not a big dress up person. Ugh, I know gosh. I'm boring. I am the qu- the guy in the corner just like, man, maybe not for me. What what should I go as? What should I dress up as? A hobbit, of course. Fair enough. That that does make sense. How about you? What would what, what would you go as if you were going as anything?
2: They do this, like, surf contest, but they also just, like, have people go out and surf Mm -hmm. uh, in their costumes. So people, like, dress up like shark attacks and witches on, you know, brooms and stuff, and they go surfing. Oh, cool. Uh, And I might have a special mask (laughs) coming to me this Friday. You guys will definitely see it. It'll be on my story. And I was thinking I would probably just wear that surfing and just kind of make make it a thing. So we'll see what it is. I don't know. I dig it.
0: I dig it. I can't wait to see this. This would be fun, right? It's going to be fun.
2: It's very exciting. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So enough uh. about that. Let's talk about your Eastern Washington trip.
0: What? <laughs> <laughs> I never thought you'd ask. I did. I did go to a certain part of the state that I, I'm not really allowed to mention. Oh, this time my focus was on like old homesteads. And I hit like a half dozen or so. And these are all broken down homesteads, so it really fit the spooky mood that we're apparently having Ooh. right now. I brought along the Chamonix. I brought along the Graflex. And the, that was the one with the, the light leaks. I think I fixed them. I guess we'll find out. And the RB67, of course. And I brought along your Hasselblad.
2: <gasps> I know. I think you said in the beginning you were only going to bring like two cameras and then you end up bringing like five. Four. Pretty funny.
0: Four. And Four. one of them was yours, and I did shoot two rolls to the Hasselblad. Ooh, what did you shoot? Nope, no idea. Probably from a Pan 100. That's a safe bet for with me, but I don't remember what it was. Honestly, I don't remember anything. I'm, I'm a big waist-level finder kind of guy, and on your Houselblad, mm-hmm. you have the prism, and that was very difficult for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is fan. definitely a different yeah. feel to that camera. Also, that, that prism finder is probably like five pounds in itself.
0: Oh, it's easily as heavy as the camera.
2: Oh, for sure, yeah. it's like the original, originally made Hasselblad prism finder. I found it like on Etsy for twenty bucks, and now I know why it was so cheap because <laughs> it's like literally a hundred pounds. Yeah,
0: it's pretty cool. My arms got tired, and I carry the RB everywhere, so yeah, that's you, why she's flexing that's right why I'm now. So buff. Look at those scary guns. Arr. My big focus for this weekend was doing triptychs, and I I know I've talked about it on the Patreon episodes. I'm not sure how much I've talked about it on the regular episodes, but I do take take three pictures in, like, a panorama and sort of stitch them together, and this is with the Shamini. And I wasn't incredibly happy with them, like, at all. Mm. Maybe on, like, further reflection I will be, but... You've seen them, are are they? Yeah,
2: I'm rolling my eyes right now, I'm sorry. Okay. He does this all the time. I kind of feel like he's doing it on purpose because they're so good. He's. It's just ridiculous. There's a fucking train in one of the shots. It's amazing, shut up.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I was very lucky there, but I did, I don't know, there's a lot that can go wrong when doing these, because you're taking three, Mm -hmm. four by five shots in a row and you're trying to match everything up and trying to level everything. And a lot can go wrong. And you know, a lot does go wrong. (laughs)
2: yeah it does, and I can see that i I haven't even attempted to do it because I don't think I'm organized enough okay. uh, to get consecutive shots in a row like that. I did mention photo the one trip to you sh- well, he, he showed me two of them. yeah. Uh, the one with the train is just wonderful. There is a little bit of a some sort of light leak or dark spot on the bottom. Well,
0: yeah, I the image circle because I was shooting up
2: to mm. get
0: a like a grain elevator. And so I didn't notice that the image circle wasn't big enough to fit in the entire frame. Uh, so
2: mm. it's not a
0: huge deal. I mean, I could it could easily crop it out. Not a big
2: deal. Yeah, it is kind of neat to have the borders. I mean, I get it to have the full picture. Yeah, with with the borders, yeah. it makes it lovely. But you can crop it down, and it would look wonderful. Also,
0: the 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 black line, I guess, at the bottom looks like a shadow. I mean, it is technically a shadow. (laughs) So it's not the biggest deal in the world. It doesn't kill the photos. It just doesn't. Mm
2: -hmm. No, not at all. It's not maybe the most perfect photo ever, but it's still a great photo. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, Mm
2: -hmm. The other one, I think it was separated too perfectly. And I kind of mentioned maybe like putting a tree in the middle where it's cut between two frames, like two pictures. I think that would make it a little. I mean, obviously, that seems much harder to do to match that up. Uh, but I think it would give it more of a flow between them because you could technically use all three of those as separate pictures because they look like separate pictures, but when you put them together, you can tell like, oh, okay, yeah, this is the same field.
0: That's really the point of it. I wanted to take three separate pictures that would stand alone on their own, but do work together as a, whatever, what is a pair, but three? What is that, as a triplet? They work together. So how about you? What have you been up to?
2: Uh, Tell me about well, it. Well, I haven't had a car for a couple of days, so that's been driving me nuts. You
0: have been driven a little crazy by that.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. And I've literally lost my mind. <laughs> it's, yeah, you're like crawling
0: out of your skin.
2: I am. <laughs> like everything that I want to do, like somehow demands a car at the moment. And it's just like, why is this happening to me? Um, also, I usually have two cars, but. I don't right now. I only have one car. And right now I have zero. So it's been really shitty. But I have been paying attention to my house a little bit. And doing a little bit of darkroom stuff. You know, yeah, So that's kind of fun. Yeah, I uh, finally developed some of the Arista five by seven sheets that I shot in the Century number seven camera. Uh, Remember, that's the beast that I took on the big trip. In July
0: so these were shots from July <laughs> yes Aha.
2: I didn't realize until I was on the road and carrying this giant camera basically from state to state that I only had 60th of a second working on my shutter and I didn't realize that till like much later on <laughs> how did you figure that out actually I didn't figure it out you did oh weird <laughs> Oh my god! You should see his face, you guys. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I had no. I w- I swear it was working before. And it, it could have been. Yeah, old shutters. They're, they're
0: they're finicky. Especially they may work right when you first start flicking around with them. But you know, they don't. They they break yeah. pretty easily.
2: I did have the other big giant aerial lens with me. Yeah. But I didn't bring any. <laughs> I forgot in my fridge, of course, there's always like that one film that you leave in your fridge and you're like, I'm going to pick you up in the morning at four o'clock before I leave the house to go on my big road trip. That didn't happen. Oh, no. <laughs> that was the ortholitho film that I was going to use and that would have been kind of fun, but it's okay. Lesson probably not learned. I'll probably do that again. <laughs> Back to developing. I trade-developed them in my dark room in dark in total darkness and i got two keepers out of i think six that i did okay and i'm not saying that the six are like terrible i just like two of them the most sure this whole like camera is insane but i love it so much and every time i see this those giant negatives i get i just i just want to shoot with it more so i really need to get this lens going i don't know i might take it apart who knows I just want to get it going. I want to start shooting it inside my house because it's on like the bigger tripod right now. Yeah. So I want to invest in some lights and kind of just like really get back into it and start finishing my darkroom. We'll see. (laughs) Probably not. That's a lie. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I don't have, I still don't have water in my in my dark room, but that's okay because I just use a bucket of water and it's fine. Also, I tried to make a list of unfinished projects and I didn't finish that list either. So, you know, just kind of add it to the pile.
0: Well, yeah, I'm sorry. It doesn't sound like an incredibly productive week, but maybe it's the start of a productive week. next week.
2: No. Each
0: episode, whether it's spooky or not spooky, we put on our house slippers and our creepy cardigans and check our answering machine. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. Vanya, what was the weird-ass question this time around?
2: Which photography trends do you find yourself not doing anymore? Now...
0: We usually get between eight and ten, sometimes a dozen messages. We got four this time. Do you think it's because the question was a little spooky (laughs) and we scared them off?
2: Maybe. I don't know. It is strange. Maybe they're still doing the trends, I guess. Maybe. And I think it was an odd
0: question. And I'm okay with odd questions sometimes because we got four good answers. So, push the damn button.
1: Hello. No one is available to take your call.
0: Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, this is MFO Photos. One of the
3: formats I no longer use, and that's instant film. Whether it's Fuji or Polaroid, those days are gone. I've had my fun with them. Um, The modern format sizes just don't interest me as much, and the results, I I don't think, are really what I'm looking for. So those days are gone, and, and that's fine.
2: Okay. This is sad violin noises please. Instant film, it's just not the same. It's so strange how
0: it did. It became a very, very much a trend, like maybe maybe almost 10 years ago and everybody yeah. was like really really into it and it was pretty rad. And then Polaroid kind of folded and became, well, it's it, impossible sort it's of impossible. happened. And Fuji shut down everything, peel apart.
2: That's what killed it.
0: Yeah, I think so.
2: It was the peel apart. That's. I think that's what really, like, honestly killed it. Because those cameras you could get 15, 20 years ago for, like, five bucks. Or they're giving them away because they're like uh, most people were like, and eh, they don't even make film like that th- for this yeah, anymore. It's true. But they actually do. And when I had mine for $5 that I got at a garage sale, I just got an Amazon account. I remember because it was like one of my first purchases. I was getting a box 10 pack box of Fuji FP-100C for like 58 bucks. <laughs> like cheaper than you can get one Freaking box of it. Oh. Like, I wish I just knew better.
0: <laughs> well, it, most of it wouldn't be good at this point anyway. True. Another thing, Mark O'Brien's voice, and I never noticed this before. I've listened to him on FPP. Mm-hmm. He, like another one of the, the folks who call in, another one of our listeners, sounds like Ray Bradbury. <laughs> and I would like them to both have a Ray Bradbury off. Where? <laughs> Let's do it. One battles the other, reading things like Dandelion Wine or or Martian Chronicles or or something. Do they read one line after another? We can try to figure out which one's which and which one's the better Ray Bradbury. Because that would make me so happy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you better make it worth their while. Give them like a roll of film or something.
0: A roll? No, this would be more than that. There there would be hefty rewards for this. (laughs) And if anybody else out there Mm. believes that they sound like Ray Bradbury, even a little bit, Leave us a message. I would like to hear from you. Hey, it's
4: James at All In Grain on Instagram. I, I've never really paid attention to what's considered cliche or trendy, I feel like. Um, but one thing that I used to really buy into was the idea that editing is bad. Or, you know, that sort of concept that you shouldn't edit your film photos. Um, and it's something that nowadays I've really started to... To rethink and um i want to take control of my images and and i think you know make them look the way i want them to look and you know post-processing is part of part of photography and even film photography and um you know tasteful editing is is something that is uh that i've started doing a lot more
2: You shoot a film picture and these days we're scanning them. So you're digitizing it. It's not analog anymore. You're digitizing it and you should be able to edit it. You can erase your lint. You can do whatever the hell you want. They're your photos and you should do what you want with them. I try not to edit any of my photos, but I do erase lint. And if I do edit them, I try to make sure that I let people know that I do. Just because I do like it to just be like film and how it was.
0: I like the idea that... Ideas can be trends and can be even cliche, and I think this one sort of falls into that. Mm-hmm. The i there was a really big push of the uh, the non edited straight from your scanner, and somehow that wasn't edited by your scanning software. I'm glad that people are kind of looking at that a second time and kind of going, "Well, that's that's not that that makes no sense, really." If you don't want to do any touchups or anything to your to your scans, that's fine. But looking down on folks that do is such a weird thing.
2: Yeah, I don't necessarily think people are like looking down. I think it's just like more you prefer it. And I could see where he's coming from because (laughs) even me have decided like, I don't want to do any edits. I want it to be what it is. But really, (laughs) there was no lint when I took the picture. (laughs) That's just my (laughs) linty ass house. A cat, or something.
0: I've been scanning a little differently lately. I've been scanning very flat. Mm. I I really try to make sure that I don't blow out the highlights with the scanner, which is a very possible thing to do, especially with FOMA Mm -hmm. PAN 100. And I'm making, you know, I really want to make sure that I don't lose shadow detail. So I scan as flat as I possibly can. And then Mm -hmm. in a photo editing, a photo manipulating software thing, I make it look the way I want it to look. Similar, I guess, to how you would do it in a dark room I don't well,
2: yeah, and that's mm-hmm. that's another thing. I mean, everybody manipulates their pictures you're you're adding time, you're adding light, you're adding filters mm-hmm. uh like you know magenta filters to your dark room uh, or to the light, so you get more contrast or less contrast, so it's it's a lot of manipulating, yeah, just in analog form, yeah
5: hi guys this is kate miller wilson i don't know if it's exactly a trend um but i experimented with off-camera flash for a long time i was using strobes and soft boxes and all of that stuff and remote triggers and this was when i was shooting digital and i learned a lot from doing that i learned a lot about light and light intensity but then i realized I was really just trying to replicate natural light. And natural light is my favorite.
0: I have never used flash. So I can say literally nothing to that other than,
2: yay, natural light. Uh, I've done a little bit. I've dabbled uh-huh. in some studio work. It's a lot of fun. Bouncing light off of things is is fun to do. I, again, I'm actually looking into getting some older lights for the big, big giant camera, big monster camera. But yeah, it is, you are just replicating natural light. And honestly, getting an assistant and having a reflector could help you get a little bit more light on someone's face Mm -hmm. or a part of the body. Not everybody has that, I get. But yeah, there are other options. And again, you know, like James said, you can get into Photoshop and just heighten them curves a bit.
1: And finally... This is Federico from Italy. Um, photography trends. Well, the one that I hate the most is, especially in film photography, is overexposing one-stop Portra 400 or 800. Uh, I do not like the look. And I especially don't like that. A lot of people are like, oh, that is the best way to expose Portra. I love it box Speed. And I find it great in Fox Speed. A trend that I love and I miss a lot is using fisheye lenses. I remember probably 10, 10 to 15 years ago, everyone was using fisheye lenses, especially in skate photography. And I used to have a fisheye lens and I miss it a lot. Very expensive though. Uh, I used to use it in, pho- in sport photography, not only skateboarding, but even freestyle skiing or any type of sports that are required to be really close. And I miss that a lot. Bye guys.
2: You're not a YouTube influencer, like, channel guy, unless you've had one episode about overexposing Portra. Oh, really? I'm sorry. i feel so bad saying that. But yeah, it is is a little odd that that is such a huge thing. But it is such a YouTube thing, too. It seems like that's one of the first videos, like, oh, top 10 best film emulsions out there. And it's always like, Portra is number one or hp5 there's
0: there's really not more than 10 anyway so i mean
2: i know at this point like how many do we have
0: so for me fisheye lenses always remind me of the beastie boys
2: me too whenever i see one i just go
0: like well that's a beastie boys video
2: well i have to like stand like that and be like yeah (laughs) yes i love it also yeah good for skateboarding good for pool skating because then you can get the whole entire bowl in it it just looks fucking cool yeah you know you do like the little front side grind over the the wedding cake stairs and you get the the whole deep end of the pool with the ladder and stuff oh so good
0: (laughs) (laughs) so the fisheye lens also reminds me that our friend michelle at space.cadet13 on instagram She's been shooting a lot of Fish lens work and she's doing mm-hmm. a print sale right now to raise money for a surgery that she has to have.
2: Oh, sheesh.
0: Yeah, and well, I guess we could grumble about how much it sucks to live in a place where that's just not something that's covered. But we do. So check her out at space.cadet13 on Instagram and her photos are, are really, really fun and they definitely deserve some support. So, Throw some money her way, you cheap
2: bastards. And if you guys are curious, our answers will be on the next dev party. But before we move on, what's the question for our next episode?
0: Well, the next one is maybe a little scarier than this one. It is, how has anxiety or your mood, if that's how you want to call it, affected your photography? And I guess it could be any kind of mental condition, any mental state or emotional state. How do your emotions, how does your mind affect your photography?
2: Hmm. I wonder what people are going to say.
0: I hope we get some good replies here. That would be great. So if you have a a thought in your head about this, leave us a voice message on Instagram because that's where the
2: answering machine lives. Or a voice in your head.
0: And now for something completely tiffin.
5: What's poppin' all through the lens gang? It's your favorite Filmweenian in residency. Given the fact that tis the season for tricking, treating, and pumpkin patch creeping, I'm about to hit you with some best practices when it comes to documenting your spooky season on film. If you're interested, I invite you to grab a handful of candy corn and sit tight as we dive right in. If you, like yours truly, are the designated photog of your friend group or only feel comfortable in social situations with a camera around your neck, and have been tasked with documenting this year's costume party along with the shenanigans that will inevitably transpire, I recommend sticking to 800-speed 35mm film and using an SLR. Here's why. Rangefinders are cool and all, but who are we kidding? You don't trust yourself next to a tray of jelly bean covered chocolate-dipped Rice Krispie Treats, and you definitely don't trust yourself enough not to forget to remove the cap from your Jupiter-8 50mm lens. But also, if you want to make sure you capture all of your friendos dressed in their steezy squid-game attire as they bob for apples from a vodka spike bucket, it's best to go the SLR route and know that what you'll see is hopefully what you'll get. As to why you should opt for 800 speed film, that should be incredibly obvious. But if it isn't, let's just say, if the venue isn't as dark as your soul, well then, don't send me an invite. Movie not? this ghoulish fallish season would be nothing without a trip to a pumpkin patch and a hayride to boot. In this case, it's best to bring your favorite medium format camera along for the ride. Literally. Unless you live on the mega wild side, trips to pumpkin patches and hayrides tend to be pretty mellow. For the most part, the patch of your choosing will be nicely decorated to suit the season. And, if you're going out with a group of buds or your loved ones, chances are they'll trade in their aforementioned Squid Game costume for some nice fall attire, which gives you a perfect photo op opportunity. Yeah, photo op opportunity. In this case, it's best to use medium format to capture your favorite humans as they walk through mounds of orange, pose with scarecrows, or struggle to pick up the pumpkin they will carve into a jack-o'-lantern. But why would you need to take a medium-format camera on a hayride? Well, just in case the driver is revealed to be the ghost of a decapitated farm worker from 1933 named Cassidy and the only way their soul will experience true peace is if their likeness is captured on a Hasselblad 500cm... ...or something. I don't know. It's not like I speak from experience or something. Pfft. But anyways, however you decide to photograph your Halloween or this season altogether, make sure to print your images. If you want to go the extra mile, make a scrapbook. It's important to remember that a season is a season of your life. And it's nice to have a record of whom you spent it with and what y'all got up to. So, print away. If you don't, I'll have Cassidy come after you. Anyways, gang, that's all for me. I gotta go practice my monster mash moves. Ooh, ooh, see ya. Ooh.
2: Does anyone have that family photo with an orb floating in the frame? That's almost definitely Grandma. You know, the first Christmas without her. Or that photo from a graveyard filled with misty, foggy ectoplasm. Okay, so
0: we're not exactly here to pee on your Halloween parade, but, you know, we kind of are, too. (laughs) Since the dawn of photography... It's been pretty easy to trick people into believing that you've caught a ghost in your frame. Hell, you know, it's kind of easy to trick yourself, which is sort of what I did. And while I'm not necessarily guilty of that now, I was horribly guilty of that a couple decades ago.
1: Ooh. Yeah,
0: I, I guess maybe it's confession time. <laughs> I am no longer a believer in, in those sort of things. But... Hmm. Uh, but I, I used Not to surprised. be quite a big believer in ghosts and ghost photography. I would go ghost hunting in in Gettysburg of all places. Oh, uh, boy, yeah, and so I would I would take my pictures as digital. This was maybe twenty years ago, and mm-hmm. I would look at at I look for orbs in my photos, and I would look for apparitions in my photos, and I'd, I'd look for ectoplasm. Though I never found ectoplasm, which kind of indicates that I found orbs and apparitions. So. <laughs>
2: Well, what are orbs?
0: Well, orbs, and I, I mean, do you think people, most people, know what orbs are? Right? I mean, right? I think so. Yeah,
2: I think I think so. Yeah. I mean,
0: so here's the thing: I don't think I've ever seen an orb in a film photo. I really? Do, I do know that the idea of orbs existed before digital. I do know that.
2: Oh my gosh! Yeah, there's definitely orbs in my photos. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Well, orbs are these little circular artifacts that some people, myself once included believed were the disembodied spirits of dead people, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't really sure. Like energy and maybe the different sizes meant different things. And you could look, if you blew up the picture, it's so embarrassing. If you blew up the picture, you could see like ah, designs or or little characteristics of the orb. <laughs> maybe each orb was different. Each orb was like a, a fingerprint for the soul Ooh. or something. And, and of course I couldn't. I couldn't explain why my camera, my, sh- my incredibly shitty digital camera could pick these up, but my eyeballs couldn't. And of course, only when the flash was being flashed, could you see the orbs, which mm-hmm. should have indicated that maybe these weren't spirits. <laughs> so what, what exactly, what really are orbs? What was I seeing
2: there? Well, it's actually called backscatter um, and it's an optical phenomenon. <laughs> Uh, basically showing artifacts from using the camera's flash. It's just reflective pieces of lint and other things that are just in the air, kind of scattered about. Dust? Yeah. Okay. Dust, Dust. particles, basically things that are floating in the air.
0: Like ghosts or or specters?
2: That can be, yes, exactly, can be reflective. Like, so rain or snow can look like that, especially if it's unfocused. Uh, Light. Like a, uh, maybe there's a a light in the background and it's kind of all bokeh broed out. That could look like an orb as well.
0: <laughs> so it could be bokeh. It could. It could be bokeh. Okay. You know those those uh, those really fancy Kodak arrow lenses
2: that mm-hmm. a lot of
0: the 4x5 photographers are using? All of those are orbs behind them.
2: Ooh, really?
0: Yeah. So I think the arrow lens attracts spirits from... The nether re the, the nether regions from from the nether world from your loins yeah I'm I'm afraid so that's where where ghosts are well that's where ghost stories come from anyway so I always wanted to see ectoplasm and of course my my first run in with ectoplasm was Ghostbusters
1: when somebody blows their nose and you want to keep it I like to analyze it
0: so what ectoplasm looks like on I guess film film would probably pick this up is it looks like well in the movie ghostbusters it's it's slime
2: (laughs) yeah it's spiritual barf i would say and yeah um ghostbusters 2 the that scene in the bathtub like destroyed me as a child (laughs) and i have not forgotten about it and i think i talk about it a lot
0: (laughs) well originally back in like the 1800s they believed ectoplasm was this kind of a cloud that would mm-hmm. come out of a medium's mouth or eye?
2: Cloud or gauze or some kind of supposed natural substance. Yeah, and it
0: would if, if uh, able to form uh, a, a full-bodied apparition, which we'll get to in a second because that's even more embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I never got to see this, but a lot of people do. I've seen a ton of ghost photos with ectoplasm and it's weird how it's always like at the bottom of the frame. Why might that be?
2: It's so weird.
0: (laughs) So, when we see these ectoplasmy clouds, uh, smoky clouds in our photos, uh, I assume it is uh, spirit matter of some kind.
2: (laughs) Probably frosty breath, or maybe someone was smoking a a cigarette and blowing it out.
0: (laughs) Or like the people whose entire heads seem to be engulfed in flames who are vaping. Yes. My God, they put out so
2: much. Vapor.
0: Vapor, yeah. Put out so much vapor. It's like their head is on fire.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so like electronic cigarettes, definitely. Crazy. (laughs) Campfires, torches, tiki torches. (laughs) It could be condensed moisture.
0: Like a fog, like a real thick fog of some kind. Mm -hmm. A real temporary fog.
2: Now, there's also another
0: thing. I never caught these, but a lot of ghost hunters have, and they call them vortices. Mm. And it's, it's hard to explain. It's kind of like tiny, thin spirals that, that go through the photos. And I don't, honestly, I've never understood what they think this is. Uh, when I was into the ghost hunting, the vortices did not play a role in my, in my research. I did my own research. Thank you. I guess those are mostly hair. Right. That's like yes. mostly light reflecting off of hair. So that's all right, yes. fine.
2: Like a strand of hair that like maybe blew in front of the the camera lens yeah. and then the flash and it just looks like a streak of light.
0: Yeah. I was really not interested in vortices. That just seemed a little too crazy for me. What I was interested <laughs> in, however, were full bodied apparitions. Not crazy at all. So <laughs> absolutely not. I was in Gettysburg. Here we go. I was in the triangular field, which is the most haunted place on the battlefield inside the most haunted town in America. And I I, I took a bunch of pictures. It was at night. I was using flash. And of course, tons of orbs, tons and tons of orbs. And I put them on the internet and someone said, you have an apparition in the bottom right corner of your photo. And I was like, I never saw this. It's a face and it's a man dressed in a blue uniform with a a hat, with a slouch hat on. And I was like, that's a Union soldier in my my own. I I, I captured a full-bodied apparition. And when I remembered back on that night, I was with my cousin, Jeff, who at the time we both were, uh, we were were both Civil War reenactors who uh, dressed in, in blue uniforms and, and wore slouch hats. And then I, I started thinking to myself, well, you know, what's, what's more likely? Is it more likely that, that I've just proven the existence of ghosts or that my cousin got in my shot? And, you know, it, you know I, I had to you know, kind of reason that out with myself. And, of course, I convinced myself that it was obviously a full-bodied apparition. I've just proven ghosts.
1: Torso apparition, and it's real.
0: <laughs> because my cousin was nowhere near my camera even though he was walking around in front of me a lot mm-hmm. so I, I think that i was really guilty of of that and I thought a lot of these apparitions a lot of the faces that we see are are can be linked to pareidolia which is the, the human mind's intense desire to take patterns and, and make them into things we understand and we understand faces more than really mm-hmm. anything
2: yeah it's like when you see a face in a tree or something yeah
0: or on mars yes uh, or the moon or you know in, in your in your in your photo of mm-hmm. uh, what was more, more than likely my my cousin and actually was <laughs> my my cousin Jeff in the photo. Yes, I'm a little embarrassed about that a little bit but I think I think I'm more happy that I've grown away from that.
2: I guess so, but it's still kind of I don't know. you never know I, maybe I, I maybe think... next time it will be one. <laughs> I, I mean, if you think about it, you do like a long exposure right. and he's got a streak behind him. Like, there you go.
0: What well, well, I mean, Here's there you go. Isn't, that, that's literally explainable by how cameras work. <laughs> I don't know if it's there. There you go. Yeah. No, I'm not a believer. I don't I don't buy any of that. I used to. I certainly used to believe in ghosts. This isn't a joke. All of these things I said are True. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing a bit here. This is how I used to think. And I used to look for these things.
2: Oh, when I took Marley to Bodie for the first time, I let her use my phone and we got like a ghost app and it just gave her something like while I was photographing, because, you know, if you go to Bodie, (laughs) you got to... You got a photograph, right?
0: I I suppose so.
2: So uh, she was walking around with the ghost app, like trying to find ghosts. And it was so much fun because she was just like, oh, my God, there's one over here. I see it. It's walking this way. Let's go. And like, it was just like kind of like a fun thing to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Was that the same like technology they use for like Pokemon Go?
2: Yeah, Uh, basically. okay, Okay. I mean, it was like four phones ago. So I'm sure they have newer and better apps now. So, yeah, that was my...
0: Ghost experience, Uh, it was every bit as real as Marley's ghost experience.
2: Also, why is everybody from like the early 19th, 20th century? There's never anybody from like 2007.
0: Also, humans have inhabited North America for at least 23,000 years, according to the new fossil finds in New Mexico.
2: Where are those ghosts?
0: Why don't we see those? Why is it always some Victorian lady? (laughs) I just don't understand that.
2: Hey, all right, so you wanna have some fun and party like it's 1863? Well, let's call Dave from Victorian Photography Studio in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania.
0: Gettysburg, Pennsylvania? Isn't that the most haunted place in America?
2: <laughs> it is, of course.
0: So Dave is a tin typist and historian who brings your Victorian dreams to life or death using traditional old-timey photography. He's also been trying to replicate William Mumler's techniques of producing spectral images.
2: Let's give Dave a call.
3: Hello. How are you guys? Good. Great. How are you? I'm doing okay it's been a day so. <laughs> but it's always a day here
2: i am having sleep issues i wake up at random times and then i decide okay i'm up at four o'clock in the morning and then i fall back to sleep by six
3: that's exactly what our four-month-old is doing right now
2: yeah i'm, I'm like <laughs> i need a sleep schedule is really what's happening yeah
3: yeah you need a sleep sack that's what we put her in it's just like yeah. a little zip up bag and it just keeps her all tight yeah the mummy yeah.
2: thing where you like yeah, yeah. it's like a swaddle blanket that you wrap mm-hmm. them up yep. real tight I yeah. wonder if I could teach Marley to like put me in one of those. That would be amazing. <laughs> so you have three children.
3: Three. Yep. Yep.
2: And you're running the studio.
3: Yep. And wow. a stay at home dad, and a lot of other things as well too.
2: So. Oh wow! So you guys, so you have probably like shop kids. They are used to being in the studio, running around.
3: Well, actually, um, I've I've hired a manager to run the studio. We moved up to New York. Um, okay. So I'm up in the Finger Lakes now. Uh, oh. So, we bought a little farm up here. And so I'm slowly re- rehabbing the farm. And um, I've got a, you know, I do all the travel photography mostly. So. Okay. I've been on the road. Um, i I think I've got what is it, five or six straight weekends on the road. So it's a, uh, it's a busy one. I'm, I'm trying to get it all in like before Thanksgiving and then just not work again till like February. So.
2: So you have a studio in Gettysburg?
3: Yeah. So we've got uh, a studio. Oh yeah. I'll let you keep doing
2: it. No, that. no, no. Go for <laughs> it.
3: Yeah. So anyway, I've got a studio, um, uh, right downtown Gettysburg uh, on Steinware Avenue right across from the Dobbin house. Our specialty there is we are a Victorian photo parlor. We're essentially trying to recreate the photo experience that Victorian people would have had from the 1850s to about the 1870s. We also Yay. shoot digital there, but our, our main, uh, Our main focus is wet plate collodion. We've got a studio camera from the mid-1850s. We have props and wardrobe and weapons and furniture and all the draperies to uh, best recreate a a parlor. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you come in, we dress you up, we pose you, we go through all the the rigmarole that (laughs) it takes to get somebody dressed into the 1860s. And then you walk out of there with, uh, with your very own tintype. Or Ambrotype. We do those two.
0: How long have you been in business? Uh, the
3: business has been around for, I want to say, about 16 years. I've owned it for the last five. Okay. So I've been a customer there for a while, well before I ended up buying it. My wife uh, works for the Park Service, and she was the director of the Eisenhower Farm And so that's right there in Gettysburg, PA. And when we moved up to Gettysburg, Mm -hmm. I had been a Zamboni driver uh, at the ice rink in Hagerstown. And it was just too far away for me to keep driving down there for that kind of job, you know, leaving at like three in the morning. So, you know, I didn't have anything else to do. We just sold a house and I took a friend in, an artist friend of mine, uh, Chantel Dinkle. If you get a chance, check her out. She's really good. Um, We went in, uh, got a tintype done and they casually mentioned that they were looking to retire and wanted somebody to kind of take over and Chantel kind of did the nudge, nudge, nudge real hard. Like you should do this. I was like, Oh, I I, I mean, yeah, I guess I got nothing else to do. So, uh, so yeah, we, you know, drew up the papers and I took it over and, uh, been doing it ever since. So for being a, uh, for being a colorblind guy with no photography background, I've found myself being a professional photographer.
0: (laughs) So you had no photography background?
3: None. I never even took a high school class. We didn't. They didn't offer it where I went.
2: That's incredible.
3: <laughs> yep. Wow. Um, my my mom has always kind of been like the family photographer, mm-hmm. um, and so she shot film well up into the mid two thousands. So I was real familiar with not wasting shots. Um, yeah. And I also had a great aunt who uh, was the last analog photographer for the Cleveland paper. Um, oh, and wow. She developed everything herself. She was, uh, her name's Artif Debow. Uh, was Art at the Bow. Um She passed away a couple of years ago from uh, ALS. Mm-hmm. And uh, she uh, is well-known in the Covered Bridge community uh, up in Ashtabula County. Um, she took all the colored Covered Bridge photos uh, that they use for the calendars and their sweatshirts and T-shirts and the uh, Wendell August forge plates. Like, if you ever see, you know, like a, a classic Covered Bridge photo that looks professional, it's probably Art at the Val
0: wow. Yeah,
3: so that's that's the only <laughs> photography background I had.
0: Okay, you don't have any history with cameras, no. but you have history with history because you're doing a very historical thing here.
3: Exactly, and that's what really drew me into it was I've spent my entire life since first grade studying photos of the Civil War um, and of the Victorian period, and that's always been my thing. And you know, you can read as many books as you want, you can read all the reports and. There's just something about looking at original photos that tells a story so much deeper than anything that you read. Uh, that's, that's just always been my fascination. I grew up in kind of middle of nowhere, Illinois, and um, we uh, we took a field trip to the Rock Island Arsenal, and there's a Confederate cemetery there. and uh, That's what really sparked my interest in the Civil War in first grade. Um, we went in and you know, as a first grader, I kept hearing them say the Silver War. And there's this big bronze cannon there. And I was like, well, this doesn't make
4: any sense. Bronze
3: <laughs> cannon, Silver War. It's, it's not, you know, my first grade mind, this was not. the, the dots are not connecting. So uh, I bought my first book and I was like, oh, Civil War. Okay, we get it now. Yeah. And uh, I was hooked. Still have that book. And uh, yeah, that's been my thing ever since.
0: Going back to the studio, most of your are most of your customers reenactors?
3: actually the exact opposite. Okay. Um, I, I would be surprised if more than 1% of my clientele is
2: reenactors.
3: Okay. Uh, we get, I mean, we get our fair amount of them. Um, but you know, the hobby as, as a whole has really dwindled, but, um, we get mostly just people coming off the street and say, Hey, this is cool. I want to dress up. Um, I want to do the thing. Uh, a lot of times we just get people who walk in and are like, what do you do here? And so we show them, and like, oh, we get to dress up, we get to hold the guns, we get the old timey photos, and you know, um, we try and you know, I don't want to slander any of like the boardwalk old timey dress up like ye old photo place, mm-hmm. uh, but we try and be a little more than that, and okay. that's kind of our that's kind of our sell is like sure you can get an old timey photo anywhere. Uh, you can go to the beach and, you know, you put on the big hat and hold the, you know, the cigar and the gun and they hand you a sepia-toned photo and off you go. Uh, a which,
2: digital sepia-toned yeah, photo. Yep, yeah,
3: yep, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we do that. Some people want that. Some people, I want to be a cowboy and I want to be a saloon girl. Like, Okay. <laughs> you know, we can we'll do that for
4: you.
3: <laughs> you're going to be real upset that it's a very period saloon girl and you're going to be wearing you know, just a white canvas corset. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we do that kind of stuff, but our our real calling card is that we offer actual wet plate photography, and it's something I'd say seventy five to eighty percent of our clientele have never heard of until they walk in, and uh, like, oh, these are on metal. Like, how does this work? And then that gives us this great opportunity to teach the whole process of wet plate photography we can throw in some history we can throw in some chemistry there's a lot of methodology that goes into it and just watching it all happen and then they get the appreciation of how long it took just to capture one image back then Mm -hmm. Um, in the studio uh, to really really capture um, kind of that period look uh, we don't use strobes we use continuous light Strobes is kind of the big thing in wet plate. Um, and I get it. I just shot a wedding and um, I did all my outside shots, continuous light. We did a, a pop up uh, during the reception. And, you know, half your clients are going to be a little tipsy by the time they roll in there. So trying to stand still for 10 to 12 seconds is not going to happen. So I'll just pop strobes on them. But um, it doesn't quite get that look. Um, when you shoot strobes, there's something just a little too. A little too crisp. There's a little too much uh, flash and and bounce off of skin. Um, there's there's something about it that doesn't quite translate. Sure, it's a tintype, but it doesn't look like a period correct tintype.
2: So yeah, it's more really like, like stark it. contrast, right? Right, right. That- yeah,
3: there's there's heavy contrast, and that all kind of depends on your your collodion too, but. Um- I'm sure we'll get into chemistry a little bit later, but uh, I specifically use uh, a a chemical recipe that's from the book, um, the silver sunbeam, which was published in 1864. And that tends to be my go-to for, you know, a period looking those coffee cream tones. Um, It's the reason I'm still using uh, potassium cyanide um, as my fixer. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of people have moved away from potassium cyanide uh, using hypo fixer, rapid fix, um, uh, but there's something to the tones that, you know, to most people, it doesn't mean anything, but to me, like that's, that's, that's what really makes or breaks a, a 1860s image for me is when you get the the right tones.
2: I think when you start to cut corners too, like you're, you're doing it all, you know, you're here in Gettysburg, you're <laughs> taking period pictures with, um, I was ac- actually going to ask you about the, like the outfits and stuff too. Like, do you guys try to keep that, um, as like very much in that time period or do you guys kind of have like an array of different outfits?
3: So basically what we do and and what I tell my, my staff there too, is if people want to be completely authentic, we'll steer them in that direction. Mm -hmm. But if they want, you know, if you want to wear your sunglasses for this photo, go right ahead. You know, uh, if you want to leave your Apple watch on, that's up to you. Um, but if you say, "Hey, listen, I want a photo where you know nobody's going to be able to tell that this isn't from the 1860s," we can do that for you, right down to the right core badges and company letters on your on your hat. We have a lot of people who come in and say, "Hey, my ancestor was in uh, the the you know the 44th New York. What did they wear?" So, all right, well, you're going to need a New York State jacket. You're going to need a forage cap with a uh, with a red Maltese cross for First Division, Fifth Corps. And, you know, we'll, we'll stack them all up, you know, um, and that comes from, you know, way too many uh, board hours uh, studying uniforms and, and you know, the order of battle for the Union Army. But uh, it's 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 one of those things that's fun to do when people come in and they just name a regiment. I'm like, we've got that. We can we can do that for you.
1: That's you know,
3: amazing. 165th New York. All right. Well, they're wearing the leftovers from the 5th New York's Zouave uniforms. You're going to need big baggy red pants, short little jacket, a fez and a turban. And, you know, well, you're going to also have to have a 63 Springfield because you know, they got rid of their 42s by then. Um, so that's that's my chance to be a history professor. Uh, not only did I not ever take a photography class, I never finished college either. I did a couple <laughs> semesters, uh, a three time college dropout. Ooh, <laughs> so, wow. Nice. Yeah. Got the hat trick. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
2: When it comes to portraits, are you looking for something in particular when it when you're taking pictures of people?
3: There, there's, there's a couple things you can do. There's, there's some people that, you know, I'm, I'm one of them that no matter what clothing you put on me, no matter how authentic, I don't have that 1860s face. Like mm-hmm. I just don't look like somebody from the period. And I have a lot of people who walk in off the street and like, man, they don't even have to put old timey clothes on. And these guys look like they're from the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's ways you can mess that up, particularly the way you stand and the way you sit, and the way your body language is. Um, from studying these photos for so long, there's a, there's a way that men in the 1860s stood for these photos. It's not the typical, you know, standing feet, shoulder width apart kind of modern military stance. Like that's, you don't see that uh, in the 1860s. You see, even, even clothing back then for men was slightly what we would consider effeminate. It was it was cut, tapered at the waist. Um, a lot of times your jackets were pigeon breasted to puff your chest out a little bit more, pull that waist in, flare the skirts of your jacket to accent your hips. Um, and so men would kind of stand, you know, hip out, chest out, you know, shoulders back a little bit, feet in a T. And so that's kind of what we encourage our our clients to stand like you know here's here's photos of men back then and how they stood and how they sat and how women would sit not just plopped down in a chair staring straight at the camera you see that a lot in you know 50s daguerreotypes but by the 1860s they learned kind of a more elegant way to pose and then you know as you get into like the 1890s 1900s that gibson girl look where you're looking off to the side you know wistfully out a window um there's you know there's there's poses that tend to be popular for different time periods and you can kind of see decade, but decade by decade, like, all right, well, this is kind of what's in, in the 1860s. This is the way men stand and sit. This is the way women stand and sit. And so we try and copy that as close as we can.
0: How do you handle the hair, especially on women?
3: Oh, so hair on women can be really tough. You get a lot of, uh, unique, um, unique looks that come in. Um, in fact, I just had one the other day. Um, you know, she had a, she had a, a side cut, buzz and then kind of like the the, the, the emo swoop going on mm-hmm. and so we left just the t- a bit of that out and put a put a, a decorative hair piece on that had a, a big hair net and I just stuffed an extra piece of silk in there so it looked like it was full and we turned her to the side and so it looked like she had bangs that were pulled back and there was a lot of hair in the hair piece and you would never know that she you know was bald on one side there's 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 ways of doing it there's a lot of modern you know modern hair that we try and hide sometimes you just can't quite get around it. People always ask are worried about their tattoos. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm sure as you guys are familiar, a lot of times tattoos don't show up very well in wet plate, especially if they're older tattoos, if they're kind of blue, if they've, you know, aged enough that they're so far under the skin, we can hide them with props as best we can. You know, there's, there's ways to shoot tattoos to make them disappear a little bit more. And then there's ways to shoot tattoos to really pull them out. I've been doing it enough where I can aim the light just right that you're not going to see the tattoos or you're going to stand a certain way or, okay, well, you know, you're just going to drape your arm through this arm. And so you can have these flowers over your other hand and we're not going to see your knuckle tattoos. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when you're shooting completely analog and you know, you're going to get one shot at it. You spend a lot of time in the pre pepper preparation of Mm -hmm. making sure everything is 100% just right before you pull that lens cap. Because a lot of times we're trying to cram in as many shots as we can in a day. We're not going to get another take at yeah. it. So, we've got to make sure it hits right the first time. Mm-hmm. Although, I have left like a Fitbit in a tin type one time and I was real bummed about that. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the look you're going for is very 1860s for, for obvious right, reasons. Is right. there a, a photo from like you that you remember from your childhood that's kind of struck you and stuck with you?
3: there is actually um there there's a a picture um of a artillery battery commanded by a captain John C Tidball something about that image and just how sharp it was shot and this is not a parade ground image this is not a studio image it was this filthy artillery battery out in the out in the field i think in the uh peninsula campaign 1862 okay. and these uh these officers barely look like officers you know like okay which one of these is captain john c tidball it's like oh it's the guy who's got his jacket open and it's like a tablecloth checkered shirt (laughs) and it's like oh that's that's him (laughs) i thought it was the guy with the buttoned up you know no that's some lieutenant um it's it's really that like weathered beaten down you know mcclellan's boys look and uh Mm -hmm. there's mud all over the wheels there's mud on their boots um it's one of those images that just really struck me with like the, the realism. I know a lot of people will, will talk about Gardner's images at Antietam or, you know, uh, the, the harvest of dead at, at Gettysburg. Um, but to me, it's the, the casual everyday shots. And, and I think that's why I tend to, to gravitate towards Timothy O'Sullivan's work. Yeah. My, my favorite photos are the posed, but not posed, you know, obviously there's no like sneak up snapshots going on. People notice when you're taking a photo and I, I get this too, when I'm shooting on the field, people see what you're doing and they're like, what's going on there. And my favorite things are the guys who are in the deep background who are just staring at the camera like <laughs> going on over there. And, you know, and then there's the guys who couldn't care less, you know, they're blurs or, you know, they're doing their own thing. And that's, that's my, those are my favorite captures are the ones of just kind of everyday camp life where you can kind of get a picture of like, And this is this is their reality every single day. It's like they're they're just camped out here.
0: Well, I guess we should we should move on to um, it is Halloween season. Yeah. And Gettysburg is known for is known for the Civil War, but also uh, Civil War ghosts. Right. Unfortunately, I suppose.
3: Yep. That's. I mean, (laughs) as as much as you hate the ghost tours, man, it's a lot of business. Oh,
0: it's got to be so good.
3: It's wild. I mean, they don't they don't speak a lick of truth, but I mean they there's there's a ghost tour that parks outside my my building. So I'll be there late at night mixing chemicals. Oh this house was a battle, the Civil War hospital. And man, this place was built in 1904. <laughs> I just didn't see anything. Get your stupid ghost tour and get out of here. Uh, the vocals from my band used to give ghost tours and he actually got fired for not making up enough nonsense. He would just go <laughs> and tell all the history stuff, and people gave him bad reviews all the time, and the, the, uh, the ghost tour let him go. <laughs>
0: oh, wow. Yep. So as a, as a ghost tour guide, you're responsible for making up your own bullshit? Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah.
3: I don't want to delve into that too, too far. Sure. Um, but uh, <laughs> there's um, a lot of artistic license uh, that, that you're uh, expected to take.
0: You've been trying to replicate ghost photos.
3: Right, right. You know, there, there was something somebody asked me about years ago. It's like, hey, have you ever seen these specific photos? I was like, yeah, I'm familiar. You know, they, they weren't really in my wheelhouse because that wasn't my thing. But, you know, with all things Lincoln, you eventually find your way to the Mumler photo where where Lincoln is superimposed behind Mary Todd. Yes. So I was familiar with it and I thought, well, there's got to be a way to to do that. I mean... He did it. I'm sure I can figure it out. And, um, I I, I bet, I bet it's as simple as just having somebody in the photo for half the exposure. And I was like, Oh, all right. right. Well, maybe it's, it's probably just a little more, little more complex than that. And, uh, it turns out it's not, it's, it's, that's, that's pretty much about it. Um, uh, for indoor, for indoor photography, that is, uh, shooting, uh, spirit photography outdoors has been a major challenge. Um, but indoors, we've got it pretty much down to a science where for you basically take whatever your exposure time is going to be. Let's say it's going to be 12 seconds total of exposure. Your non-ghost subject is going to sit absolutely still for the entire exposure. And then I'll open the lens for, I found, one second longer than half. It tends to be my recipe for shooting in my studio. So if it's 12-second exposure... For seven seconds, the ghost stays in. I close the lens. They step out of the frame. I open it back up for an additional six seconds. Close the lens, and then go develop it. So yeah, I was—I've uh, been doing a lot of studying on the Mumler case, reading that book, *The Apparitionists*, and um, what is—it's—it's it's very clear that he was obviously using people from around town to be his ghost subjects. There were several reputable photographers who went in and watched his whole process. And couldn't figure out how he was doing it. You know, there were a lot of like, well, if I did it, I would do it this way. And then they watched Mumler's Process and they're like, huh, well, that's, that's not how he does it. They couldn't figure out exactly what he was doing. And so that's bugged me too, especially the Lincoln one. You know, that's the real famous one. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he doesn't have Lincoln there. Obviously, there's probably not a Lincoln lookalike. But she gets this image back and it's clearly Abraham Lincoln, but only in the face. Um, i've been looking over this image, and one thing I noticed about all mummler images is that i 've never seen the actual hard copy of of a glass plate i've only seen albumin prints and the way they refer to you know the photos back then they aren't they don't differentiate between whether you got the actual glass plate or whether you just saw the albumin print when it was done and so that's where I think the trickery is being pulled. You can layer certain things with an albumin print and, and make it work. Uh, I think he used a real nondescript body, which if you look on that Lincoln one, it's real nondescript. It's like white pajamas. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. then there's Lincoln's face. He probably got his hands on a Lincoln glass plate negative, possibly scraped off the edges so that just the faces, because it's, it's, it's an image of him, but he's looking down. Yeah. He's looking down at Mary Todd, probably used that as a relievo type glass plate and layered that at an angle on top of this you know plain white pajamas guy and just layered them in in such a way and he probably knew the timing of amount of how much sun um of human prints needed that he could make them soft focus you know light like that <laughs> and and he, he probably had it down to a science um mumler was doing it in a way that didn't catch him doing there's some kind of sleight of hand in the development process where you, you missed something. Um, so he, he, he must've figured something out and, and ran with it and then just never let anybody else catch wise. This is a camera that people have been playing with for 160 years and there's still a mystery out there about how it works.
0: Well, is there anything else that we should cover?
3: Oh, so, um, one of the cool things about being in this, this medium right now is it's one of the few artistic mediums that is slowly being dominated by women, especially younger women. And it's completely brought a freshness to this medium that hadn't been there before. When I got into it and, you know, when I was just a, a subject in this for a, a long time, it was all old white guys and they all did the same thing, which is something old timey. Mm-hmm. They were all looking to be old timey and it really kind of just was stuck in a rut. You know, Coffer uh, kind of revived it back in the 70s and it got into the Civil War world and that's where it stayed. And it stayed stuck in Civil War reenactment forever. It wasn't until maybe, you know, the last 10 years or so that a lot of people have taken it out of its historical context and really have used it as an art form. And honestly, the best work coming out of the wet play world right now is from a lot of the younger women doing it. Carla Rodriguez out mm-hmm. in Minnesota, um, Blackhand on Instagram does unbelievably good work yeah Uh, my friend emily white down in richmond fantastic artist Uh, she knows more about the process than i ever will my friend vanessa who you had on here before Uh i don't know how to pronounce her last name (laughs) armadillo tintype she actually helped me move not too long ago no way that's a friend oh lisa elmalay down in west Mm -hmm. virginia yes really good all 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 types of large format she's really really good at Uh, And there's and there's a ton of up and coming younger women, too, that are that are getting really good at it, too. Alex Andrioli and Sarah Coulter Mm -hmm. are out there. Um, They're getting started in it. There's Girl Out West, uh, Sunshine Acid. And then there's a girl who's been making really cool resin frames from from the 1860s. CAS Photo is her name. She just sent me a really cool Eichmeyer ninth plate case as well too there's a whole bunch of wet plate artists down in texas right now who are doing some cool stuff mm-hmm. uh, jen jansen in chicago does amazing work with uh reproducing uh digital images into tin types uh photo restoration i mean she's a true artist out there um really cool work that she does as well too i've got a platform and i feel like the best thing i can do with it is to uh promote all these other all these other artists you know as a as a hetero white male i kind of have I've got it made already. You know, I don't have to do anything unique or new. People will just look at my work just because of who I am, and I've already got a platform for it. Um, mm-hmm. And whereas these other, these other, especially women in the Collodian forums, they have to prove themselves every single Body. time. Um, they have to answer every question. They have to argue everything. Well, I could put any any garbage photo up, and nobody would bat an eye at it. And be like, oh, cool, that's great. It's just just watching this just watching this happen for so long. It's like I can't identify and I can't claim to be part of that community, but at least I can promote, and at least I can be a mouthpiece, and at least I can give a platform and amplify. Uh, If that's all I can do, that's what I'll do. It's just a really cool world to be in right now where people have taken something that was really just stuck in 1860 and have really, really expanded it well past what anybody thought it would ever be. All right. Well, I I have to go finish putting together my daughter's bed because I got part way through that and then stopped. And she probably wants to go to sleep tonight. (laughs) Of course. We shall let her do that. (laughs) All right. Well, it was great talking to you guys. Yeah, it was right, wonderful. Bye. Thank you so much. So have me on anytime time you want to not talk about photography. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Deal. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.
2: Have you ever seen the words safety film marked on the edges of your rolls or sheets? Just what does that mean? If this film is safe, is there an unsafe film? We'll get to that in a minute, but first, let's talk about gunpowder. Let's.
0: Gunpowder was invented in China about 1100 years ago. During the Tang Dynasty, someone discovered that if you mixed together sulfur and saltpeter, also known as nitre, it would become explosive. This changed everything. Across the next few centuries, as other cultures acquired this knowledge, gunpowder was used in fireworks, in weapons, and just to blow shit up. The formula changed slightly over the millennium but sulfur, carbon, and saltpeter were there all along.
2: As the era of muskets and bronze cannons drew to an end during the American Civil War, a new invention was taking the place of gunpowder. This was called gun cotton and was essentially the same thing with carbon being replaced by starch or natural fibers like cotton.
0: This was discovered in several steps, but essentially it came about by accident in 1846 when German-Swiss chemist Christian Friedrich Schonbein was having himself a clumsy little day.
2: He had somehow managed to spill some nitric acid and sulfuric acid on his kitchen table. What he was doing with either of those around his sauerkraut and sausages is beyond us. And why he reached for his wife's apron to wipe it up is also a mystery. Unfortunately for Mrs. Friedrich Schoenbein, he hung the apron next to the hot stove and the damn thing ignited in a flash.
0: But now, and unfortunately for Mr. Schoenbein, another chemist published a similar formula first, but his story isn't as dramatic, so sorry, F.J. Otto, if
2: only you had better PR. Later that same year, yet another chemist patented it and immediately opened a factory which literally exploded by July. For the next 15 years, nobody wanted anything to do with this stuff. Following the American Civil War, which may have seen a limited use of gun cotton, though probably not, a safe procedure for manufacturing it was discovered.
0: They achieved this by changing the ratio of sulfuric acid to nitric acid from 1 to 1 to 2 to 1, for those of you who want to make this. This made it a bit more stable, though it burned more slowly. They called this new form of gun cotton collodion, And now about half of you are figuring out why we're talking about gunpowder.
2: While all of this was happening, Alexander Parks invented Parksine, the first man-made plastic made from plant cells of some kind and nitric acid. It was translucent and elastic and ridiculously explosive. It was also bought and renamed Silonite by Daniel Spill, who somehow resisted the urge to name it Philonite.
0: In the US, John Wesley Hyatt stole the idea, patented it, and renamed it celluloid. Again, you probably see where this is going, but whatever you called it, in the end, it was cellulose nitrate. Now that we have words like collodion and celluloid, let's finally talk about photography. In the 1880s, a British fellow named John Carbutt, a photographic dry plate maker with an unfortunate last name, contracted the celluloid manufacturing company to make thin slices of celluloid so that he could coat them with his photosensitive emulsion. The first results were stiff and pretty brittle.
2: Meanwhile, yet again, an Episcopal clergyman from New York named Hannibal Goodwin was traveling the country sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. In his act, he used glass plates illustrated with scenes from the Bible. The roads were bumpy and the glass often broke. So he set up a laboratory in his attic and came up with a much more flexible form of celluloid. Goodwin patented it,
0: but so did Eastman Kodak. After his death, Goodwin's formula was sold to Ansco, who successfully sued Kodak for patent infringement. Way to go, Ansco. Regardless of those shady dealings, by 1889, basically everyone had access to cellulose nitrate, a flexible, transparent base, which could be coated with the photographic emulsion of one's choosing.
2: It was also, like gun cotton and gunpowder before it, wonderfully flammable. Or as they called it then, inflammable. Because English is confusing. Through the early part of the 20th century, motion picture houses popped up in every little town and city. The popularity of roll film in still photography exploded pun intended, due to Kodak's brownie camera line. Every single roll was essentially a tiny bomb waiting to go off. Sort of.
0: Nitrate film, or as they called it then, film, wasn't dynamite. Yeah, it was hazardous, it was explosive, but a lot of things were back then. I mean, they had kerosene lamps in their house, just like burning away above your heads. That said, nitrate film, especially when it came to motion picture film, wasn't without its victims.
2: At room temperature, nitrate film is almost perfectly safe-ish. But get too much above, say, 200 Fahrenheit and you're inching towards a very low flashpoint. Remember, this is essentially gunpowder, except more explosive and more flammable.
0: For fire to burn, it needs oxygen and fuel. Take away either, and it goes out. A candle can be snuffed out by a bell, which deprives it of oxygen, or by cutting off the wick, which removes the fuel. Nitrate film is fascinating because it contains its own oxygen and its own fuel.
2: Simply put, it can never be extinguished. It has to burn itself out. Even submerging it in water won't do the trick. You can't smother it in dirt or even a fire blanket. And if you try to put it out, it'll probably release clouds of poisonous gas.
0: This is exactly what happened at the Cleveland Clinic in 1929. On the morning of May 15th, the clinic called a steam fitter to fix a leaky pipe in the sub-basement. This was a fairly routine repair. Unfortunately, they also use the sub-basement as storage for their four tons of X-ray film, all on nitrate base.
2: There was no spark, no flame, just the heat from the steam. It reached the nitrate's flashpoint and all four tons of it caught fire at once. The first explosion blew a hole in the roof, remember, This was from the sub-basement. The strange yellow smoke wasn't so much smoke as it was a poisonous mixture of carbon monoxide and nitric oxide and methyl chloride.
0: The hole left by the explosion filled with this gas. But then came a second explosion, which forced the gas into all parts of the clinic. And here is where the death toll mounted. In all, 123 lives were lost, most due to suffocation, and some of the victims lingered for days.
2: This was, of course, an anomaly. The more popular sort of nitrate fires were in movie theaters. By 1930, the National Fire Prevention Association had tallied up the movie theater fires in the States. There were, by their account, 530, 285 of which were directly related to nitrate film. Most of those, 122, were caused by normal operation of the projector with its hot projector bolt. The rest were attributed to the film Breaking, The Light Getting Too Hot, Cigarette Smoking by the projectionist, and various other causes. These
0: fires happened outside the United States as well. There was the 1929 Glen Cinema Fire in Paisley, Scotland, which killed 71 children gathered to watch a movie. Upwards of 1,000 kids had filled the theater, but when the film's pool caught fire and the projectionist couldn't contain it, smoke filled the auditorium. Someone shouted, fire, and the kids panicked. There was a stampede and then a trampling. All 71 kids who died were crushed to death by other panicked children.
2: Another in the USSR in September of 1930 claimed the lives of 72 moviegoers. Again, they panicked and all rushed to the exits. In this case, the entire theater went up and many were burned to death.
0: As more and more of these theaters caught fire, the public began to see a pattern. Most deaths were not from the fire, even from the toxic cloud, but from panicking. If they remained calm, even remained in their seats, they stood a much better chance of survival.
2: On April 16, 1927, in Chester, Pennsylvania, the film exploded in the projection room. Some of the flames spread into the theater itself. The house manager ran to the stage and calmly admonished everyone that there was very little danger. The audience, 1,000 strong, remained seated and all survived. It was through not only public awareness, but through building codes, that lives were saved.
0: To combat these fires before they started, movie theaters built projection booths. This is where the movie projector is located. While it's basically just how things work now, back then, little thought was given to where to put the projector.
2: After a few fires, however, asbestos-lined projection rooms, often fitted with still doors, were built to house the film and the projector, and the unlucky projectionist. If there was a fire, the room could be locked up tight and the fire would soon burn itself out without harming the rest of the building.
0: This was the case in a theater near Pittsburgh, which caught fire in September of 1927. Once again, the house manager assured the audience that the fire would be contained in the projection booth. Some had already stood up, but even they sat back down. The organist played an overture and they actually finished the movie minus the reel that exploded.
2: It wasn't just the movie theaters that had this problem but also film archives housing nitrate films. In these fires, there were usually no panics or deaths, but the loss to film history is simply unrecoverable. It's estimated that only 25% of silent films have survived to the present.
0: Even before the end of the silent era, the Universal Pictures Fire of 1922 destroyed 185,000 feet of film, which is a lot of movies. This destroyed all universal negatives from 1913 to 1922.
2: Eleven years later, a relatively small fire at Warner Brothers destroyed a few years of their earliest talkies.
0: And then in 1937, the big one hit. A fire at 20th Century Fox's storage facility in New Jersey was started by a spontaneous combustion of gases sublimating from the nitrate film and high temperatures. This combustion was more explosive than fire, but it injured two and killed a 13-year-old boy.
2: Though the firefighters managed to extinguish the flames engulfing the building, the film itself ignited inside the metal canisters. Remember, nitrate film doesn't need an outside source of oxygen to burn.
0: In all, Fox lost every single film they produced prior to 1932. For some, there were multiple copies, but for most, this was the only copy in existence. And for all, the nitrate copies were by far the most sharp and defined.
2: The MGM fire of 1965 destroyed every film in Vault 7. Due to MGM's preservation efforts, most of their silent films were made into several copies, including some on safety film. Still, films by Lon Chaney and Greta Garbo are lost due to the blaze.
0: Fortunately for all of us, nitrate film was discontinued in 1951, replaced by a non-flammable cellulose acetate base called safety film. Safety film was invented as an alternative to nitrate film in 1904 and was on the market five years later.
2: The problem was nitrate film was much more durable, more transparent, and wasn't prone to cracking. The images produced with nitrate film had deeper blacks, more transparent whites, and are still just as sharp today as they were the day they were exposed. In the
0: 1930s, safety film was mostly marketed to consumers, especially when 8mm and 16mm motion picture film came into fashion. I mean, nobody really trusted consumers with that much nitrate film when it came down to it. (laughs) For the most part, roll film and sheet film for still cameras was nitrate well into the 40s. Shortly after the discontinuation of Nitrate Film, Kodak began production on the s film base, a polyester base that was initially used in spy satellites, but eventually wound up taking over the motion picture industry. And we will talk a bit more about the spy satellites in a future episode.
2: So when you're digging through your parents' safety film, don't worry, you're perfectly safe. But when you're rummaging around grandma's nitrate stock, you best keep your wits about you. Spontaneous combustion is real. This stuff can seriously fuck you up.
0: But if you do have nitrate film or nitrate sheets, nitrate paper, please make sure to keep it in a fireproof container and really just don't mess with it. Or at the very least, keep it away from your kitchen aprons.
2: Every episode, Eric and I like to grab a zine and talk about it. Mostly these zines are from our amazing listeners and new people that we started following. We have two zines, me and you, what do you got? I have a zine
0: called Elsie's Camera. It's a quarter size zine put out by M Forrester or at itsbittertooth on Instagram. After purchasing a huge lot of old photographs, they found a few featuring a woman named Elsie. Unable to find anything else out about this Elsie, they put a zine together. So in these 28 pages, they feature 13 photos of Elsie, probably taken around 1920, you can kind of tell by the dress. They also included the backs, where brief little nuggets of information and little slices of life were found. Things like, here is Elsie with her hair bobbed, taken in the front garden. And uh, Dick bought this coat Elsie has on. It's just one of those little slice of life zines. There's not really a story there, but you get to know Elsie and her friends, her doctor friends and her nurse friends a little bit better. It's also it's less than three dollars. You can get it from Etsy and we will put the link in the show notes. I'd like to see more zines like this, honestly.
2: Yeah, that's so cool. It's it's a cool to kind of give memory back to something that's you know a lost photo from a hundred literally a hundred years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know a lot of people do go to flea markets or yard sales and they pick up a ton of old photos. And I bet you could find a thread through most of them. They're usually coming from the same collection, or the same family. So there's gotta be that thread in there. So Vanya, what do you have?
2: I have blue, (laughs) B-L-U, issue one. It's a female surf zine. Oh, so weird. I would pick this one, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Where'd that come from?
2: So now while we focus on mostly film centric zines, this one kinda has a little bit of film photography in it, but it also has a bunch of badass women in it. So I'm considering this okay to review. I would agree. This is made by women and for women. Blue is an independently run publication based out in Cornwall. This zine focuses on women who are passionate about surfing and the ocean breaking the surfer girl stereotypes and welcoming all to a better built surf community through women art surf and passion which is amazing you're, you're, i'm like you're tearing all for up a this. little bit <laughs> i am i am i'm like literally brings a tear to my eye so <laughs> Um, issue one showcases some women in photography, in filmmaking, textiles, and surfboard shaping. It's a well-rounded first issue. I love projects like this. It's just sharing like what these people are doing around the world. And like for me, living in Southern California, it's a typical ocean community. Kind of learning a little bit about some of these women that live in Cornwall was was really awesome. I just enjoyed it very much. And I know one of the artists because she was on a surf trip I took to Mexico last year, Jordan. uh, She's at Jordan Romero on Instagram. She has some absolutely lovely 35 millimeter images scattered throughout the zine, as well as a full article on her film that she directed, We Are Like Waves. And it's basically about uh, her time in Sri Lanka with a woman surfer. This is the great thing about it. The scene. 10% of the profits go to Sea Sisters organization. And basically what that is, it provides swim and surf lessons for free to women in Sri Lanka. In the past, you wouldn't see women on the beach, let alone one learning or knowing how to swim. So using swimming and surfing as tools for empowerment, they focus on building confidence, showing new possibilities and equipping local women with the skills needed for jobs in a thriving surf tourism industry while diversifying the lineup and changing gender norms. So this is a six by nine paperback, 42 pages, and you can get it on the link in the show notes it's six pounds plus shipping obviously All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting books our newspaper.com account for research audio equipment and much much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. If you
0: like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, you
2: can become a patron subscriber.
0: We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less
2: than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. So, Vanya,
0: we're winding down the show.
2: Wine, 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 wine. What does the next
0: week for you look like? I mean, photographically speaking, of course.
2: I probably should look, I keep looking for like a Speedotron <laughs> kit, like lighting kit. Like I just want like an old lighting kit and lighting kind of sucks. So if anybody wants to message me and help me out, I need some help.
0: <laughs> Do you want vintage lights? Is that what you're going for?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm just kind of going for like an older light. I don't want to spend like thousands and thousands of dollars. I want to spend like, 350 okay, <laughs> for, like, all of them. Sure, sure. <laughs> so what I can get for that without exploding my house, obviously. Of course, obviously. How about you? What are you, what are you planning on doing? Well,
0: I don't think I'll be heading out anywhere this next week, but <gasps> I will continue oh, my no. slog of developing. I've got so I still have stuff from July. What am I yeah, doing? Uh, I learned from Garen Kiesel, however, that... He's been doing stand development with my ECN2 kids. And I'd never really and we we did a, we did a dev party on stand development. I don't think it was with ECN2, though. It was with C41, right?
2: Do I don't I did I remember doing ECN2. I I uh, know C41. So I'm assuming you did ECN2, but I don't
0: know. I really don't remember. But maybe I did do this before. Maybe I did an entire episode about it. I don't know. But when he <laughs> told me about it, I was very surprised. And that's all that matters. So I think I'm going to give that a try. And what's the best thing is I can do that while developing black and white. Because he does 45 minutes in developer, 45 minutes in bleach at room temperature, and then fix as normal because fix doesn't, eh, the temperature doesn't matter so much with the fixer. Uh, I see. Yeah, my ECN2 kits are available at my Etsy store and there's a link, ah, goddamn everywhere.
2: So what do we got coming up next week on Dev Party? Ooh, F-A-1027. What is it? Why use it? And did a clearly insane person invent it? I think they
0: did, or at least wrote the notes for it. And we're going to get into all of that on the next episode of Dev Party.
2: Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at lens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's lens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at Lens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. You got all that? Vanya is
0: at Surf Martian.
2: And Eric is at cartographer.
0: Both on Instagram. Why you can't say that? (laughs) And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff hashtag all through lens
2: podcast to be featured we do this a couple times a week now we also do a spotify playlist for each episode so check those out and see what kind of spooky thing we got going on there won't be any misfits I'm sorry no nope. just search all through a lens
0: you can also find our episodes on spotify as well as on stitcher apple Podcasts, google play and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts subscribe and leave us a review
2: the music you're hearing now is from last regiment of syncopated drummers which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you
0: all sincerely so much for listening. Have a safe Halloween. Have some fun. Shoot some film. Remember that we love you. And we'll see you next week Definitely. Oh, Vanya. Yeah. Do you want to go out and shoot some orbs or some ectoplasm? Fuck <laughs> okay, yeah! Let's go.
1: Ooh. chainsaw
3: massacre
1: no it is good oh i gotta tell you i love this film it had passion and a
4: plucky spirit and the, and the characters had integrity like when leatherface went on that strict
1: diet of human flesh he had to cut out chicken and fish completely dave i agree with you i'll go a step further sure leatherface he wore a mask made out of human skin and he hung people on meat hooks but hey we've all got quirks i've got them. you've got them dave that's what makes this character so so compelling. <sighs> Thumbs up from me, same here. To sum it up, I'm Saw. I'm Dave, we'll see you at the movies. <laughs>
4: okay.